Welcome to Oikos. How are you all doing? Awesome. Did you all have a wonderful Happy New Year? Yes? Great. So a couple things I want to give thanks for. One is on this really cold morning, this church has heat. Because some of you have experienced when the church has failed to have heat. And some of you have experienced when the church has failed to have air conditioning. I conveniently have been gone those times. <laughs> but uh, this morning as I walked in, I thought, you know, in an old building like this, I'm thankful that things are working and that God has chosen that this is a place where we can gather as a community. We're in the book of Acts. How many of you went through the book of Acts for the first two years of the life of Oikos with us? So we're back again. But don't worry. We're not going a couple verses at a time this time. We are going to be going through very quickly because we're going with our reading plan. So if you haven't gotten on the reading plan, we use the Moravian text, daily text, and all you have to do is sign up. We've got a place on our website if you want to go so that you can follow along with us as we read through the Bible. Basically what you do is you read through the Old Testament once and you read through the New Testament once and you read through the Psalms twice. And this will give you a good idea of what the whole entirety of Scripture looks like in about two years. So it's not a one-year reading plan. It's a two-year reading plan. We've been through year one already, but you're not too late to join in into year two. And then, surprise, surprise, we'll probably be restarting the year after that. Why we continue to do this is how many of you remember and have memorized the book of Acts? Me either. The Bible is so full of not just information, but inspiration. And so when we look at the Bible, there is always something new. Because it's not something that's dead. We know that in Hebrews it says it's living and it's active. So to catch us up, I want to get us through the first nine chapters of Acts. So basically, we know that it begins with the disciples and others gathering in Jerusalem. This is a big event. Jesus has just been resurrected. They're excited. They're also scared. They're all gathering together, and then Pentecost happens. And the pouring of the Holy Spirit is poured upon thousands of people. No one could deny something incredible happened that day. And then history would also say no one can deny it because from just a few hundred people, all of a sudden, the church started to explode. And before we knew it, in a short 300 years, there were more Christians in the world than anybody else. And it overtaken the Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire that was just the Roman Empire, became the Holy Roman Empire. It became Christianized, we would say. Then Jesus ascended. He said, I'm going to be leaving, but you will do greater things. So I am sending you to represent the church. They had to choose a new apostle because remember Judas betrayed Jesus. He killed himself. And so they looked for a replacement they continued to hear great sermons from Peter. Huge, changing, life-changing messages. 
And then we get a glimpse. I'm only in chapter 2, by the way. But I'm going to go faster in just a little bit. We get a glimpse in chapter 2 of what the early church was like. That they daily gathered to meet together. To eat meals together, including the Lord's Supper. They prayed together. They worked on what they had learned from the apostles. This was a daily gathering of what they did. And this is something that Oikos wants to be known for. And so that's one of the reasons why we have this thing called missional communities. So we have missional communities spread throughout the city, and we want more of them, because what it is is our way of practicing what does it look like to recapture what family looked like in Acts chapter 2. The family wasn't only just your blood relatives, but family was gathered together under the blood of Jesus. And in these families who daily gathered together to pray and share God's word, they saw huge life transformations. And in a few short years, a few hundred believers became 100,000 believers of the ways of Jesus. So Oikos started with that mindset or concept of how can we recapture what we know worked well and we know was blessed? How can we become a church that grabs onto family? Maybe not better than other churches, but we're going to make that our goal. We're going to try to figure out how does it look like for us to be a family who prays together, serves together, gives thanks together, lives together. The good and the bad. I saw a movie last week, and it's The Crooked and Straight. It's just saying a great song, Good, Good Father. You're perfect in all your ways, but I bet we could all say, man, I didn't have a perfect dad. But in this movie, Fences, it talked about you got to take the crooked with the straight. And my dad was just visiting this last, over the holidays. And he does some things that can really irritate me, right? Maybe you have a dad like that. But that message, I believe the Holy Spirit was pushing on my heart to say, Aaron, your dad isn't perfect in all of his ways but take him as he is, just as I have taken you. So as a family, we learn what does it look like to open up our houses to people who are crooked and straight, people who maybe don't have it all together, people who maybe you're not so sure you should trust. But we look at how can we exercise this huge gift of hospitality so that the world can start to understand what does this look like to join God's family, not a church, but God's family. We also do daily morning prayer, or what we call devos. We do this at Target. Our plan is, in case you didn't know, is that this would be not just something that centers just at Target, but this would be something that would grow, that it would go into multiple areas of the city, that we would have morning devotions with a, a group of people. Right now, it's about 10 to 20. Um, one day we had almost 30. It was a little bit too much in there because there's not 30 chairs. 
but we had a lot of people in Target gathering for morning prayer. That's significant. We continually hear of people who are outside of our community say, we're just so thankful to hear Jason or, or Ian or whoever's playing music that morning, that they get to hear a little bit of God's praise, that they get to hear about people talking about who God is. That's our daily rhythm of gathering for morning prayer. Wynn is going to be looking at how does he do this in Montrose as he starts a church plant. The other thing that we do is the Lord's Supper. And this is something that I realized we weren't doing as well at as we could be. So when you read in Acts chapter 2, they were daily doing this, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And traditionally, oikos, which I don't know if you can say we have any traditions, but basically we get them somehow in a short time that we would only celebrate the Lord's Supper on second and fourth Sundays. The reason for that was very logical. I wanted space for baptisms because we didn't want you guys to have a long service. But you all know that it's always long, right? So we re-looked at, well, what is, if we're trying to recapture what Acts 2 exemplifies, then why aren't we celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday? we're actually starting that today. So Oikos is turning over something to look at for the next three to six months. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Now, I welcome conversations, phone calls, texts, emails, tweets, whatever you want to do, to say, you know, I don't like this. And I want to have a conversation if you say, I don't, I don't think we need to do this every Sunday because you're part of the family. We want to have a discussion about it. But I think the best way to have a discussion is that before you get into saying how you don't like it, maybe we should at least try it. So we're going to start with doing. We're going to reflect on what we're doing. And if you start going, I don't think we need to do it because we're doing it in our missional communities. Because if you don't know this already, I've encouraged our missional community leaders from the get-go that when they're ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that they begin doing that on a regular basis. Because this is how we know the church grew. By studying God's Word. By looking at what the apostles did and imitating what they did. By being on mission together, not separate individuals out on their own by acting as a family, as a family within a center of a community that needed support and love and connection, they were able to go and say, hey, I want this. I want to live in a family that operates like this with love and concern. So we do, we're going to be starting the Lord's Supper every Sunday because we believe it's critical to follow the way that Jesus discipled, which is he started with information, he then had imitation, and then he went to innovation. So this is a simple, just, it's a shape, it's a triangle. Everybody knows triangle, right? You start with what does it look like to receive the information when you're studying God's word, and then look at what Jesus did, and then go from there and say, Maybe we even innovate a little bit to apply it to our current circumstances. So this is what we look at when we are doing things in the church. 
So this is Acts chapter 2. And then after Acts chapter 2, some incredible healing and some more incredible preaching happens. The church expands the apostles even have to recruit more people because they have these great crowds of widows and poor who they want to feed. But they realize that they're spending too much time trying to feed them. And so they recruit more leaders to do the feeding of these poor and widows. They follow exactly what James says, one of the greatest things you can do. And then as they do this, these deacons, so they were called, became preachers themselves. And then we become, we come into the chapter where we see our first martyr in the church. And so you have Stephen who's killed because he's preaching. He was one of the ones chosen to just distribute food, but he ends up in a situation where he's preaching. And they didn't like it, which I'm glad you guys don't stone me when you don't like my sermon. But Stephen gave this incredible message. They didn't like it. They began to stone him. And then we see the first glimpse of Saul, who was standing there holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And Saul, we would later see, becomes the chief persecutor of the church. So a few more years pass. We're still not to chapter 9. There's a lot of history here. And Saul becomes that chief persecutor. And then on his road to go persecute more people, Jesus is the one who converts him. He stands in his way as a bright light, blinds him, and says, Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul then receives the faith, changes his name to Paul. He begins a journey to Jerusalem where he's welcomed by the apostles. He begins preaching, and then he's told, by a bunch of the Jews who were scared of him because he was killing them before this, before he had this little switcheroo, that we don't really want you here, which is understandable, right? And so he leaves for his hometown, Tarsus, and he's out of the picture for about 13 years. Now, you don't get this when you're in Acts because, like, you flip the page and it seems like it's just the next day, but sometimes you flip the page in Acts and it's been like three years. So now we're entering chapter 9. The emphasis shifts again completely to Peter because he is recognized as the leader of the church, the leader of the apostles at this time. So Acts chapter 9, verse 32, if you want to follow along. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas, who was, had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which is in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him. Please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and the other clothes Dorcas had made for them. 
But Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and he prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, he sat up, she sat up. He gave her his hand and he helped her up. And then he called the widows and all the believers and he presented to them her life. The news spread through the whole town and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, the tanner of hides. In the text today, we see two healings. All demonstrated and executed through the hands of Peter. And so as Peter takes this prominent role, he he steps in right away by doing the things that Jesus did. We see in verse 33, he meets this man named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden. Then he says, Aeneas, Jesus, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up. And instantly he gets up. So he meets this guy who has been confined to his bed. Now, I don't know if you have seen many people who have been bedridden, but it only takes a few months before you start developing bed sores because your body isn't circulating like it should. Your circulation isn't working. You're, you're not exercising. The normal function of your body is to move. But when you're bedridden, things don't work the same way. He was bedridden for eight years. So this healing that Peter does is not just about a guy who is paralyzed and then all of a sudden gets up. It's about a complete healing of this guy, not just with his legs, but with his entire body. Also with his mind. Think about the things that you've been stuck in in your life maybe just for a month. Maybe it's a, a bad attitude or maybe it's a financial situation. Think about someone who's been poor for, and I mean poor. They, they lost their job. They're getting unemployment. They're barely making ends meet. And it's been a couple years. We know statistically that many of those people who've been unemployed have just dropped out of the workforce completely. They become so mentally debilitated that they don't see that there's an opportunity out there for them. This guy for eight years could not walk. Had people walk by him, probably helped him go to the bathroom. He probably felt as much shame as anybody. Maybe he had done something stupid to get him in that position. Or maybe it was something that he had no control over whatsoever. Maybe he just got a disease. We have no idea why he was paralyzed. But we do know when Peter approached him, he had been there for eight years. And Peter just simply says, get up. But he says it, not I, Peter, command you to get up. He says, Jesus Christ has healed you. I wonder if Aeneas is laying there and he hears these words. 
if he had a moment where he just kind of sat back and thought, he's crazy. I mean, he's not even Jesus. No one's going to help me get up. And did he have that moment, and then did he also start to feel the weakness evaporate and the strength invigorate his legs? And was that that feeling that just started to run through his body like blood rushes through your body? Did that feeling give him the faith to get up? I don't, that's what I was thinking about the story. I thought, what an incredible thing to be laying there and have someone just say that Jesus Christ has healed you, so get up. And what an incredible faith of Aeneas to say, okay. So where is Christ telling you to get up and walk? I'm sure you have something. Because when I thought about this question, I had a few things. Where have I been stuck? Almost paralyzed. Or actually paralyzed. In my thoughts, or in my words, my actions. Where have I been paralyzed? Where has fear crept in and told me, you can't do that? Where have people walked by me and said, you can't walk. You can't do it. I want you to focus in on that right now. This, that particular thing, the biggest thing in you right now that either you believe you can't or someone has told you that you can't. When you got it, go ahead and just raise your hand. Right now we're playing a little bit of chicken. Is he going to keep going if I don't raise my hand? Is it going to allow us to just kind of sit with our hands raised up and how long do I have to keep my arm up? You've got something. In fact, it might be even the fear of acknowledging that you have something that you want God to work on. I mean, how many of us go through life and we have this huge mask where we tell people, oh, everything's great, it's good, it's fine, I'm good. But underneath that mask, you know it is crap. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Where in your life have you been stuck? So in the name of Jesus Christ, he heals you. He looks at you in the face and he says, Get up. Move forward. Let go of what you've been stuck of or in. 
and let my breath of life fill you. Amen. So when this guy got up, the whole town began to talk about him. Because it's incredible. Not only did he get up, he rolled up his mat, meaning, I don't have to go back to this mat. This place that has been my place, I'm free. I hope you can do that with that one thing that you just thought of. Roll up your mat and be free. The whole town's going to talk about it. That's why we do these stories. We do these occasional stories about once a month where we talk about life transformation. Each life transformation that occurs is someone who is getting up and rolling up their mat. Amen? So the whole town's talking about it. And then a nearby town hears that Peter is there, of course, because everyone's like, hey, this guy has just gotten up. He's walking. He's been paralyzed for eight years. The whole town's talking about it. They're excited. And it filters into this other nearby town. If you ever grew up in a small town, you know how that happens. It doesn't take long. If you had been a Lutheran, which if you didn't know this, surprise, surprise, Oikos is a Lutheran church. If you've been a Lutheran growing up, you realize how small our community is, even though there's about 2 million people, that the moment you do something, some other Lutheran and some other town knows that you did it because they heard from Joe Schmo, who is your cousin, because that's how small communities operate. Well, just think about a distance of about two miles a healing like this is not going to be contained into the borders of a small little village. It's going to go everywhere. And so they have this wonderful lady. Her name is Tabitha or Dorcas. And she continues to care for the widows and those who need things. She sews. She's, I mean, you can just see her. Oh, you need some clothes? Let me go make that for you. She must have some kind of means. She must be a smart business lady as well because she has resources. So she is giving out resources. She is making sure her small town, her community, her family is taken care of. But she dies. And man, when someone prominent in your community dies and they've done good things, the whole community mourns. We have kind of a sick way of doing this. And I've, I'm in this sickness as well. We don't always mourn those who have done great real physical things. We mourn celebrities. So like I wasn't, we got Zach an Xbox One for Christmas. And um, it was really kind of him and me Christmas. He didn't know that. So we weren't really watching the news and all that kind of stuff like we normally do. And I realized I went through the whole week and I didn't know that Princess Leia had died. <laughs> but so many people were mourning this mother and daughter, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. I almost said, Debbie, you almost got in the sermon and didn't even know it. <laughs> Reynolds. And we mourn the celebrity, but we don't even know them. And they did some good things, I'm sure. But 
we focus in on the celebrity, not always the prominent person in your small little village that is working hard to take care of people. Well, when this news spreads, Peter is moved to go there right away. It kind of helps us recall back to Lazarus, the friend of Jesus who died, and Mary and Martha call Jesus to come quickly because he's sick. So let's look at that story in Luke chapter 8. It says, while he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jarius, the leader of the synagogue. He told them, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jarius, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she'll be healed. This isn't the story of Lazarus. Sorry, I got a little miss on my little tangent there. I got a little bit off. But it is the story of Lazarus is what kind of recalls us come quickly. This story that we're reading right now is a story that is, resembles exactly what Peter did in the small town of Joppa. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew that she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand, and he said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up, Then Jesus took them to give her something to eat. So we see that Peter is called into the town to do something that isn't a normal occurrence in Scripture. Resurrections are not something that just occur like that, not even in the ministry of Jesus. We know the one of Lazarus, and we know of this story right here, where a resurrection occurred. Otherwise, it's pretty much not there. So we see this resurrection where Peter is faced knowing that this person has already died. He's walking in there not expecting someone to be healed, but walking into a situation where this person is dead. And you have to think that Peter went back to this story of Jesus and thought, is this like Jairus' daughter? Am I going to go into the same kind of situation, and can I even do the same thing? So verse 40, but Peter asked them all to leave the room, then he knelt and he prayed. This is the verse that I think demonstrates that Peter was a little bit nervous. And it's a good thing because he goes to the one person that he knows will give him strength and the help to do what he's asked to do. In the story that we see with Jesus healing and resurrecting the young girl, they all laughed at him. If I was Peter and I was walking into this room, I would be thinking, everybody's going to laugh at me because I'm going to say, what am I going to say? But Peter does exactly what we should do in those moments when we don't know what to do. Turn to Jesus and ask for help. So turning to the body said, get up, Tabitha, which is almost the exact wording that Jesus used. Talitha is what Jesus used, but it's just a different form of get up. 
So he says, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, he sat, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented, to, presented her to them alive. He just uses a little bit of innovation, but he does the exact same thing as Jesus did. So he takes the information that Jesus had given him. He imitates exactly what Jesus did. He innovates just a little slight bit. He doesn't give her something to eat. He just presents her. But basically the same thing. And so as I looked at this story, I thought, where is the Lord calling you to do the seemingly impossible for him? So let's just think about this. Some of you, you may have a, a couple or a family member where you're thinking their marriage is going down quickly and it's going to be impossible to save. Is Jesus calling you to step in and help? Sarah and I just found out a couple weeks ago, and I hate finding out this way through Facebook, that a family that we know, they had four kids, or they have four kids, they just split up. Seemed like a great family on the outside, but obviously something wasn't right in the house. Maybe it's he's asking you to represent him where you feel uncomfortable in doing so. Maybe it's with your boss, you're not sure whether he or she follows Jesus. Or maybe it's with your spouse. How many of us are scared to talk to our spouse about who Jesus is? Or a friend. You know that good friend of yours that you have a good time with? But Jesus never seems to enter the equation. Maybe it's with a family member a daughter or a son that you love, but you've never really had a conversation about who Jesus is? Maybe it's going to the hospital because you have a friend who's sick. And you want to pray for healing, but you're scared that what if the person's not healed? Maybe it's going to your friend's house who you know is emotionally not well and you're praying for healing for them. And you want to, but when you get into their house, you're just a little bit scared to actually offer that prayer. Because what if they laugh at you? Where is the Lord calling you to do the seemingly impossible for him? I've found that in many of the conversations that I've had with all of you, and even with myself, Yes, I have been known to talk to myself from time to time. I have those conversations. I am a little bit crazy, but you guys picked me, so I don't know what that says about you. But that's, I have these conversations where I, I think through, well, what is it that when I'm faced with something that seems impossible, I have a tendency to go, well, I don't think he's going to do anything. What did Peter said as he's walking up to this little port city? I can't do that. 
Only Jesus can do that. What if Peter walked into that room and said, this is way too much, the girl's dead. I can't do anything here. What if Peter said, I can't even approach Jesus about this one. And I know that each of us in this room have faced a situation where we've had that conversation of, I can't even ask Jesus on this one. So maybe it's just better to do nothing. How many times have you said that? I can say that I know I've said it. Maybe it's just better to do nothing than to attempt something that seems impossible. But God makes the impossible possible. That's a, you know, catchy phrase. You can take that. I didn't make it up. Somebody else made it up. I don't know who made it up, so now you can just say I made it up. God makes the impossible possible. He just takes a couple letters out and changes what you think isn't a reality into reality. That's who he is. That's why he can breathe on something and give it life. So if we believe he can breathe into us and give us life, then a simple utterance of, you are healed in the name of Jesus Christ, should be able to do the same thing on the darkest part in the worst human that needs healing. We're celebrating the epiphany, which is bringing the light of Christ into the world. And I hope that as we think about these things, that we start saying, it's better to try something than to do nothing. Because my God makes possible what seems impossible. Jesus even said it. He said it in Matthew 19, 26. He said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, say it with me. Then Paul would say the same thing to the church in Philippi. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Do we believe in those? So the next time you're faced with something that you go, maybe it's better to do nothing. I want you to go back to those verses. You should mark those verses. And you should hear the words of Jesus saying, what you think is impossible, Aaron, is possible with me. We are a church that believes that when we face something that we think is impossible, we look to Jesus. So I got an image of Jesus here. I want you to be thinking about who's the most ridiculous person that you just don't want to love. Get that image. Don't look up there. It better not be Jesus. Who's that person that you just, when you see him, you kind of uh, cringe? You know that person, right? Come on, I'm not the only evil person in here. You got... That, those people that you just go, oh, I, I don't like, you almost say hate, maybe you do say, I hate that person. Got that person? 
Well, Jesus is calling you to love them. So when you don't know how to love them, look to Jesus. Replace that person's face and then look to Jesus and say, is it possible to love them? Is it possible to love even that person? When you don't know how to bring prayer into your relationship, you know that relationship, it just started, the girl's really cute, or the guy's like really hunky. You don't want to say anything about Jesus because maybe that's going to be weird. Look to Jesus in that moment and say, if you're not in it, is it going to make any difference? No matter how, how beautiful she is or how handsome he is, will it matter 50 years from now? When you go into a hospital room and the person's sick, and you are the only one there to represent the church, and you're not sure how to heal, look to Jesus. He didn't make it complicated. He said, just do it in my name. Do it in my name and let my kingdom come. When you're not sure how to share that message, look at Jesus. His message was not a complicated message. His message was, love me. I love you. As you receive that love, love me and love others. It's, it's a simple message. We complicate it. We're like, oh, I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't share the gospel. Or if I share the gospel, what if that person asks that question that I don't know? All questions end in Jesus. Even the kids know that, right? If you want to impact the world, how many of you want to impact the world? It's one of the things that the millennial generation, it's number one thing, impact. I want to make an impact. They may not know what that means but they want to impact the world. You cannot impact the world if Jesus isn't who you're looking at. If you want to make disciples, you look to Jesus. You want life transformation, you look to Jesus. You want to become a house that's open. You want to learn what it looks like to be family, look to Jesus. We complicate things so much. We go, oh, I can't do that because I've got a big family and i got all these responsibilities, so I can't open my house to other people I don't know. Or I'm a really private person. I'm not an extrovert, so I can't open my house. But Jesus says you can do all things, even the things that you think you can't do. Jesus says when you're uncomfortable, look to me because I am with you. You're not alone in doing this. He loves you that much. If you get anything out of the message today in Acts chapter 9, 
My prayer is that it will be that you look to Jesus with every need, every hurt, every place of your heart that needs to be healed. That you just simply look at him and realize that as we celebrated that he is Emmanuel, that as you look at him, he's been already looking at you. He's been by your side every, every moment of the day. Every time you said, I'm scared. Every time you were doing something that was not like him, he was already with you. Because he takes the crooked with the straight. He looks at us and he says, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I want you to be my family. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to listen to your words to us. Number one, that your grace, because of the things that you've done for us, through your humbling of coming into the flesh and becoming one of us, to dying for us, rising again, and then promising to come back for us. Then in that simple message, you've done everything. So we give you thanks, Lord. But now we just, our life is just a practice. We get to practice loving others. We get to practice looking to you. We get to practice being a part of your family. So Lord, help us to embrace that, to not become so serious about everything that we do that we forget that it's you who are doing it. Lord, may we rest on you, the one who saved us, the one who is with us, and the one who will be with us forever. In your name we pray, amen.